0: YourWelder.com was built by actual industry welding experts who actually perform this type of work on a daily basis. And here's the best part, they're veteran owned and operated. So go check them out at YourWelder.com. And also feel free to check them out on social media where I'll include their links in the show notes. All right. Hey everybody, welcome back to episode 59. I'm super excited uh, to be recording this episode today because I have a dear friend of mine a fellow I was on the job with, who's still on the job, getting after it, doing great things in the community, as far as um, emergency services go, and as far as mental wellness goes, and leadership goes, and I could go on and on. I want to introduce you right now, my good buddy, Doctor David Griffin How are you, bud. t hey, how's what's going on, buddy? I'm here, but I'm I'm not looking as good as you. What kind of hat is that?
1: Oh, that's my Scully hat. You know, that's my old man Scully hat. I like it.
0: It looks almost like a like a like an impromptu painter's hat, like. <laughs> kind of is I, maybe I was
1: painting earlier today. I like our look. I have the mustache and the Scully hat. You got the giant beard and the, and the country boy hat. I love it.
0: I know, man. I, my hat's all shredded up, looks like it's been hit by a bush hog. Yours looks like it just went through the GQ wash. Come on now. <laughs> but that mustache is gorgeous. So, for those of you listening, you know, I don't, I'm not doing the uh, video portion, but Dave's got a beautiful, beautiful mustache going and big old handlebars, man. I, I wish I would have grown one when I was on the job.
1: I always thought about doing it. I saw a lot of guys with it. And uh, for uh Movember one month, guys asked me to do it. So I said, I'll try it. And it grew in pretty thick. So I figured I'd keep it. Now it's kind of just my, my thing. I really like it.
0: I feel like that that's, I cheated myself in my fire career by not doing that. I was too pretty and I didn't, I uh, didn't take the time to grow out a big gnarly beard. And now look, my, at huh?
1: now look at that big beard you have.
0: I know, but it's a little too late, man. I want to be back on a rig with a big old, big old smoke stained mustache. I was talking. um I was telling a story to a guy I met yesterday. He he actually worked for city, city of Charleston. And and for those who don't know, Dave, he's um he's a battalion chief with the city of Charleston. He's still on the job. We went through a lot of things together, and that's what I want to have Dave tell a lot about his story today, and talk about some of the trials and tribulations. But one of the fun things I love about running into guys who who work for the city of Charleston, I don't know any of them anymore. Uh, all the old guys seem to be gone, but. I ran into a young kid. He did 10 years with the city after I left. And uh, we started talking about Billy Bob and uh, I write about Billy Bob in my book. And I remember the first time I was in, we had a, we had two fires back to back on Rutledge Avenue uh, in the early two thousands. And he was up in the rafters just sitting there with no, uh, no air pack on. And he was just sitting in the, uh, the ceiling was pulled. and He was just sitting up there breathing smoke. It was like, he was training. That was his training.
1: That's Billy Bob. You know, he's a, He's one of the most impressive firefighters I've ever seen, just the way that he handled himself. And just as really as just general knowledge of what to do in those situations. It came so easy to him, almost like a professional athlete playing sports for him. It just, it made sense and he saw things that we didn't see. And it was just fun talking to him. I mean, you talk to him and the biggest thing he usually says is, oh, God dang.
0: Yeah, Uh, oh, God dang. (laughs) Giving his big ass brother. Yeah, it's oh, God dang. All the uh, time, I, know, I, I remember I saw him up there, and I was like, what are you doing up there? He's like, come on, come up here, Budro. And for those of you who don't know, we call each other Budro's down in Charleston. But uh, he's like, come on up here, Budro. You got to get some of this good smoke. And he made me go sit up in the rafters with him with no, no mask on, just breathing smoke. And I remember thinking, I mean, is kind of damn ridiculous. But oh, that's what <laughs> we did. You're asking
1: yourself how, how you got to that point, right?
0: That I was, that I was. So speaking of how we got to – to that point, man, this episode's all about you, all about kind of what you've been through in your career and how you got to where you are now. You're you're the command, was it the shift leader, command? How, how do y'all title that down there? I don't know.
1: It's a shift commander.
0: Shift commander. I had it all backwards. Shift commander. um City of Charleston Fire Department. What shift are you on? It's a shift. You're on a shift now. See so downtown on Cannon Street. That station's looking good, man.
1: It is. We've been relocated to Central Station, which is the corner of Meeting and Wentworth. We've been there in Chief Rusty's old office. That's now the uh, office and our bunk room for the shift commanders, which is cool. Oh, wow. A lot of history, a lot of history there. But Cannon Street is wrapping up its renovation. We should be back here within a month or so. So I'm excited about it.
0: Great. I can't wait to come down here and see it, man. But uh, like I say, I want to tell your story. I want you to be able to tell your story and kind of how you got on the job and, you know, start from there and, and just just flow away.
1: Well, I had played baseball after going to the Citadel. I played college baseball there, and I left the Citadel in 2002 when I graduated, and I wanted to chase my dream of being a big league baseball player. And so I had a chance to go play independent minor league baseball in Evansville, Indiana, and I played there for a couple of years, but I just couldn't make the transition to a wooden bat. Just couldn't figure it out. So I got released from my contract. I went back to Charleston, started coaching baseball at the Citadel, and just being from Charleston, born and raised there, living there my entire life, I always had an interest in the fire department because I knew the fire chief at the time. He always came to our baseball games and he had mentioned being a firefighter one time to me. And I really didn't think much of it because it's not something that I'd really thought about as a profession. So I started to do some research on it. I watched some good movies, you know, Backdraft, Ladder 49, (laughs) started calling myself Bull and Axe, you know, just the the normal stuff that firefighters do. And I, uh, I realized I thought it would be a good opportunity. So I said I would give it a shot. And man, I loved it from the first time that I, I put the uniform on. I, Chief, Chief Rusty gave me some equipment, sent me to uh, 1152 in Colleton County. And I walked in there and I had no idea what I was doing. And everyone else in the class had somewhat knowledge of being a firefighter, but I really didn't. So I finished that, went back to Charleston and did my recruit school, which at that point was about two weeks. And, when I graduated, I was assigned to engine three, which is at the corner of Meeting in Wentworth, and one of the oldest working firehouses in the country. So it was pretty cool to be able to, to serve in that that station my first shift and realize the gravity of what I was now a part of. So it was it was incredible. And it still is to this day. That's where my, my bunk room is now at that same station. So it's ironic to think how far I've come, you know, almost 17 years ago and, and realize. Man, I was, I was so young, lost and confused then, and then today I'm I'm still trying to figure it out, but it's weird to look around and see all of those good guys that were with us to be gone and to now be one of the older guys. It's it's, it's really weird. It's a hard adjustment for me.
0: Yeah, I'm sitting here writing some notes as you're talking, dude, because so many memories are coming flooding back. Now, when I was on the job, I was, I was already on the job when you came on, and I remember one of the first times, you and I crossed paths. I mean, I was, I was lifting weights. I was, I was sun sun kissed. I was wearing baby oil to work all over myself. You know, hair was always right. And then walks David Griffin one day with a uh, you had a, um, a, a Tupperware disc with this dish with t- uh, chicken and rice. And I was like, that's the first time I'd ever felt intimidated on that job. And I was like, wait a second. Cause we're around a bunch of rough, rugged dudes. And then you come in equally as pretty, if not better, I I would say probably better. And I was like, wait a minute. And I didn't even talk to you, man. I kind of gave you a head nod. And and we were having a class in the back of the Cummins Street uh, station, what we call the truck house. And I was trying to figure this dude out. I'm like, why is he eating out of Tupperware too? What's
1: wrong with this guy? I mean, that's when I was bodybuilding. If you remember, I was going
0: through
1: that that little phase of it was probably three or four years of bodybuilding and uh, gaining weight and losing weight and trying to get. Uh, really defined so you live that life some too
0: dude yeah so i wasn't i just wasn't like in competitive mode i was always about hey go to the beach let's round up you know well we'll keep it we'll keep this uh decent here but i would go to the beach looking good it was
1: still fun though it, it was uh it was nice because we always had that competitive edge like between ourselves because we always were trying to drink more water and eat more food and work out harder and you know it's just it's what we did but it was always like friendly competition
0: you know what, bro, is, is is you teach a lot of leadership courses around the country. And I'll tell you one thing that you showing up on that job honestly made me better. And I don't know, I don't think I've ever told you that. And I think what it did is it was your competitive nature, my competitive nature. And when they collided, I was like, all right, I know Dave's over there looking good, but this makes me want to look that much better. And so I would go to the gym and I would crush it on my days because we worked opposite shifts. And the day I met you, one of us had been, done a, a shift change, but you were B mm-hmm. shift, I was C shift. Yeah. And, and, and then we became friends on the job and it, and it was beautiful thing. I remember one night coming down, this is how dedicated you were for people that don't know. That's a dedicated industry that you were in in bodybuilding. And I remember waking up, I was uh, working with you in engine three one night. And Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if you were on a different shift or I was, but I smelled something. I was in the bed and I was like, damn, I smell steak. That's what you smelled. And it was 2 AM and I I walked downstairs and I'll never forget. Now you got to think, you uh how much at your peak how heavy were you think
1: the heaviest I ever was was 262 in the off season.
0: then that's what you were when I walked downstairs that day that was 262 of just man sitting there and I was like I walked down I was like David what are you doing and You're like boy, it's time to eat I was like it's two in the morning <laughs> you were just cooking a steak I was well I ate
1: 24 hours a day every three hours and that's legitimate that's not an exaggeration and you're a testament to what I did so at at that point in the middle of the night, I would have one pound of ground beef and I would have one pound of sweet potato and I would get up in the middle of the night. I'd set my alarm for midnight. I would cook it. I'd sit down at the table. I'd eat it and I'd go back to bed. And many times I'd lay there and be like, Lord, please don't let me get a call right now because I don't know how, how I'm going to heat this food down because it was so much food to go back and lay down and try to sleep. But it was like you said, man, it's. I think we make each other better that way. I think we do that on the job and in leadership. You see someone that you want to be able to, to work towards a goal. Maybe you look up to them. And I I had the same thing when I came in on the job. And I, I think that's important that you said that. And I appreciate you saying that about me, but I think it's a testament to if people are really open just to improving, they will look around and try to find someone that they want to emulate, or they want to try to make themselves better. And essentially, I mean, that's what, that's what life is. Sometimes you need that external motivation and, and inspiration. We all do.
0: That's right, man. So, and I tell people, I'm like, you hang around losers. That's what you're, you want to emulate losers. You hang around losers. You're going to become a loser. But if you want to be a winner, you hang around winners, you hang around successful people yeah. and it just, it's, it's contagious.
1: I had a guy send me a text this morning. I'm going to, I'm going to find it, and read it to you. Cause I think that adds into what you were just saying. It says your diet is not just what you eat. It is also what you watch, listen to, and who you allow around you. It's pretty powerful stuff.
0: It, it's 100% if you're, negative,
1: right. if you're around negative people that are trying to bring you down and are always in competition with you instead of competition to make you better, a better person, a better leader, a better firefighter, it's, it, it really starts to wear on you and you turn into that negativity. And it's not good for anybody.
0: No, it's not, man. And we've, you know, over the years, you and I have talked a lot about, you know, I don't want to get too, too in depth with it, but we've talked about haters when people see you doing well and doing good things, they automatic automatically um, want to hate on what you're doing without knowing anything about it. And if they stop for two seconds to just learn a little bit about what you do, it may change their way of thinking. And that's why, you know, I love when I go out, when I'm, when I'm doing my speaking engagements and teaching courses, You've been doing this so long, and we're going to get into all of this, but I wanted to get some stories out of the way. You've been sure. doing this so long that everywhere that I go, people, the first thing they come to me, they're like, you know, Dr. David Griffin? I'm like, yeah, he's my buddy. They're like, oh, man, we went to his class. We saw him speak. And and, and you know what? I, I don't hate on that. I love it. And I get to sit there and, and tell them like, yeah, dude, I actually know the man. I had a friendship with him, still do. And I'm proud of that.
1: Absolutely, man. I think that's a testament to, to both of us because I, I get the same comments. And I think that's important because we understand um, the reason for why we do what we do. And, and it's important. And it's easy to be negative or to hate on something if, if you don't have an understanding of it. And I always try to have empathy towards that. I try to do things for the right reasons and realize that if it's done for the right reasons, it will make a difference. And think about how many people that you've helped, the things that you've said and things that you've written. And that's, You have been given an opportunity to do something to make people better. And if you don't take that opportunity serious, then you are giving away a gift that you have been given to do something from a a bad event, one, but a bad life in, in certain terms for you because you've had a lot of trauma in your life. So why would you not try to educate people on that? The best people to talk about trauma and addiction and struggles with life are people that are traumatized, are addicted, and have struggles in their life. Not someone that just read it from a book and said, I think I can help you. You're speaking from experience. And that's why when you speak, you have that buy-in in your classes and people they are engaged with what you say, and they buy into the things that you give them to help themselves. And it's a testament to what you you have lived through. And you're now trying to do something about it to make it better.
0: Yeah. I tell people all the time, man, it's like, I, th- I feel like I've, I've helped more people doing what I do now than I ever did on that job. Sure we had some grabs and some saves here and there over the years, but man, the messages and the emails, and and I know you get them too. And it's not like, that's not what you do it for, but it is nice to see the fruits of your labor and that, that that the message isn't falling on deaf ears. And because you got to think you started talking about this stuff years ago before it was really okay to do it, man. So you were really the pioneer of it. And when I started doing it several years ago, I mean, it was still kind of looked at as, eh, I don't know if we should be talking about that. But then I think about the courage that you had stepping up to the plate, sharing your story and being vulnerable. And, and you were a role model for me. I I was sitting in my front yard the day I called you and told you I wanted to do this. And you're like, bro, just do it. Just get going.
1: Absolutely. I always saw that as great. I, for one, I thought it was cool that you called me and asked me because I wanted to, I always want the best for other people. I don't know how people can live their life not wanting the best for other people to be successful. It's just not in my DNA. It's not the way that I was raised. Um, I just I just can't fathom that. So I thought it was cool that you were able to reach out. And we talked through it, man. We had a lot of good conversations. You talked about wanting to write your book and how to get out there. And that's my decision was just to do it. I had been thinking about it for a while when I was in school. And I said, there's something inside of me that's telling me I need to go do this. I know some people aren't going to understand it at first. I know they're going to disagree with it. But if I don't do that, it's never going to get out there. And it was for the right reasons. And my dad always told me, if you do things for the right reasons, it will turn out to be a success and you will help people. And that's at the end of the day what you're trying to do. And I'm just very blessed to be, you know, almost 10 years later to still be speaking on the subject. And now it's, it's kind of morphed into other things of post-traumatic stress and leadership. And it's just exciting to see that the, our profession is starting to listen because I know the first class I did for post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic growth. I had probably six people in the class (laughs) and then the next year it was maybe like 12. And then the next year you had a few more. And, but now that's what people are gravitating towards because they realize that a lot of what we do is trauma and it just wears on us time, time. And again, And if we don't talk about it, we're never going to become educated on how to fix the issues.
0: And that, you know, that's the hardest part, man, because I remember when I first started opening up about this, I'd never talked about it. So it was really hard. And then after you do it a few times, it's just like anything else. You you start, you learn how to, how to work through it. Um, I, you know, I still get up there. I get emotional when I speak. And as I'm sure you do, um, you know, I'll say certain things sometimes where, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll think about Lewis and uh, the other guys and, it, and it'll hit me, but, you know, you remember why you're up there and everybody in that crowd, you know, and they're sitting there. Wanting to hear what you have to say because they 90% of them have the same issues going on, different circumstances, led them there, but we all have the same issues. And that's, what's cool about mine and your story. They're so parallel. I love hearing you talk about your dad because you're, you're close with your father and I'm close with my dad. And it, you know, it's, it's, I love seeing that. Um, but I want to get to um, obviously want to talk about your experience with soap store fire and um, kind Ooh. of what led to your downward spiral, if you will. Um, I'm not here to talk about mine, but uh, before I get there, I do want to talk about, cause I had these notes about, I got a note about a high rise fire in your big ass head and a little helmet. And
1: it's oh, a rough one. Hey, you want me to tell that story?
0: It's just, Well, there's not really a story. I just remember pulling up to a high rise fire one time and you were engine three. And uh I was on ladder four that night. Uh And I remember getting out, and your you were so big your coat wouldn't really close all the way. Mm -hmm. And your head was so big, your helmet looked like a a damn yarmulke. Mm -hmm. And I was laughing. I was like, man, somebody get that man a proper turnout gear. It was hilarious.
1: Yeah. Well, it was it was right in the middle of the stage where I was, you know, trying to get as big as I could. And my goal that year, which sounds crazy now, was I was trying to hit three hundred pounds. I'm five, eight. And I was trying to hit 300. I've had a heart attack, but I was so into that life of being big because I, for most of my life, I was always so little and I was picked on. And so I had an opportunity to, to see if I could get bigger and I did, but man, it wasn't very good for the job, but yeah, my gear was very hard to button to button up or zip up in my off season, my helmet very rarely fit. I remember I took my class a picture and uh, my captain made me wear my hat. Cause it was so funny because my head was so big and the that hat Richard? was sitting on top of my head. And so that, that picture still is in um, Central Station in the collage they have. And I see guys walk by. They're like, Chief Griff, is that you? I'm like, yeah, that's me, like 110 pounds plus.
0: <laughs> Jeez, man. That's, I've never seen a firefighter outgrow their bunker gear.
1: I, I had pants, like in the offseason, my pants were like 46s. And then in season when I was competing, they were down to like a 28. That's how much I would change.
0: That's insane, man. And then we did, so we were talking about this. Now I got to keep this Disney, as they would say, but we were, we had a, I don't remember what year it was. Maybe it was 08. We had a calendar. Mm-hmm. Remember that calendar, uh, firefighter calendar event. And you were my competition. I was like, I gotta, I gotta beat Griff. I gotta beat Griff. And then you showed up, you brought the whole show, man. The place was go. We had 450 people inside that place and it was all women going nuts. And I don't want to bad talk JJ. He's my boy, but He JJ- beat us. Won the whole thing.
1: the <laughs> beat because he had half <laughs> of his neighborhood <laughs> come <coming> out. <laughs> I know it was awesome. That was it great, was awesome.
0: that, yeah, it was a fun time, man. It's good stuff, dude. So, yeah, we had we definitely had a lot of fun times on the job. Um, but you get to the more more serious um, aspect of it. So everything seemed to be going fine and good, man. And you know, I don't really know about much about your life as far as trauma went prior to. But on uh, June eighteenth, two thousand and seven. You were the first engine on scene of Sofa Superstore, and I'll let you take it from there.
1: Really, my life had not been, there had been no trauma in my life. I had a great childhood. Um, I was very blessed. My dad uh, was a radio personality for about 44 years, so he was very big in the community. Everywhere he went, people knew him, which allowed me to meet a lot of influential people in our community in Charleston and still know a lot of them over the years. So for me, I, I was very blessed, and I, you know, I went to a good high school. Um, I was a, a rather small guy in high school, but I did have some issues with that, and I think that started to really affect my self-confidence and really my belief that I could do really anything in my life. So I played baseball in high school, and I got picked on quite a bit, and then you know, that kind of led into some issues of just me not really believing in myself. So long story short, I go to the Citadel to play baseball, Best decision I ever made. The first day I walked in there, I was absolutely petrified. The guys were yelling at me so hard that I was shaking so bad. They then started to yell at me to stop shaking. I remember the guy standing in front of me. His name was Mr. Roboto. I still remember to this day, he goes, Griffin, stop shaking. I was shaking so bad. My knees were knocking together and my whole head was shaking. I was so scared of that guy. And, uh, but I remember going through, it was called hell week then in the knob year. And I remember like starting to solely gain confidence in my, in my ability to really do a lot of things that a lot of people don't want to do. And um, that's kind of where I learned about uh, the speed the speed of me. I always talk about, I have one year and it's fifth year. And that's, that's the only thing I know how to do, whether it was bodybuilding, it was Ironman triathlons, it was fighting and, you know, now it's leadership training and really trying to work with our team and make them better. It's, when I'm in, I'm in. That's, that's what I'm doing. And I, I don't know any other way to do it. So unfortunately, when I came on the job, I had that mentality. But for some reason, I strayed away from that. I still can't pinpoint why. I think I just came into that under the umbrella of complacency of it'll never happen to me. And, I, you know, I saw some guys that were operating that way and nothing ever happened. So as a young guy, you think you should be the same way. So, you know, disappointing to me, I disappointed myself. I didn't train as I should have. I didn't learn the mechanics of operating a pump as I should have. And so, you know, on that day driving to that event, I wasn't prepared for that event. And that's not a blame on anybody but myself. And I've said that every time I've spoke since I started doing that, because it's my personal accountability of realizing that you have to take some personal stock in in your skill set and try to improve. And I, I didn't do that. Because of the simple fact you don't know what you don't know until you don't know, and then it's too late. I realized on June 18th at 7.09 p.m. that I didn't know what I needed to know, and it wasn't intentional. It wasn't because I was a bad person. It was because I never thought like something like that would happen to us. I mean, think about that. We had never thought about losing firefighters because we had the confidence in what we did. We had that belief, and we, we thought that that happened everywhere else. So we arrive on scene that night and I already have a lot of adrenaline and a lot of nerves going and I'm trying to figure out what to do. And as I start to see the scene unfold, I'm trying to figure out how to operate the pump, which is not the time to try to figure that out. I'm trying to teach myself how to properly lay a supply line, which obviously I did not do successfully. And I'm trying to identify where hydrants are. And I think back on that today when we train young firefighters it's make sure, you know, where your second, your third, your fourth hydrant is. But back then I can honestly say when I arrived on scene, I had no idea where a hydrant was. I just didn't. It wasn't a part of my skill set because every time I trained, guess what was always conveniently next to me, a hydrant. A
0: hydrant that's right.
1: So I said, I, I thought that was my reality. And so when you're young and you don't have a lot of life experience and you don't train for the real event, when you arrive to a real event, you just naturally think there's going to be a hydrant close by. So I learned a lot about life very quickly, and unfortunately, that's not the time to learn it. And it's weird how the time frame got so, so thrown off in my mind because those first really 38 to 40 minutes is the, the, the deadly time of that fire, if you want to call it that, is when our guys became lost and they were running out of air and the building flashes and really, it's about 28 minutes into where the building, when the windows are taken out and the building does flash, that's when our guys are in just severe danger. And that's when we have about, it's about 10 or 11 minutes of multiple radio transmissions of people saying, help me, saying the Lord's Prayer. You have a mayday that comes out. You have a firefighter that says, I love you. And I can honestly say I'm standing at the pump panel, probably 30 feet from the front door, and I have a speaker in my face, and I don't hear any of that. None of it. I didn't hear that until the next day or so afterwards when we were able to listen to the radio traffic, and I was in total shock that that was actually going on. And so that led to me now questioning what I was doing on the scene the following day and then years after that. But I remember as I was trying to pump that engine, we had a lot of good people arrive on scene off duty, and they were just trying to help. I had multiple people come up to me and help and help me stretch hose lines off the back, try to help me get the truck to go in the pump. That truck had a little quirk with it. So if you didn't know that quirk, it would not go into pump. And unfortunately, I did not know that quirk. And I use that as a teaching moment for our young firefighters, the importance of doing a shift changeover with a driver or a captain. If I would have asked that morning, hey, bud, is there anything about this engine I need to know about? Very simply, they could have told me that and I could have said mental note and I could have practiced that and there would have been no issue. But I didn't do that because I thought I could figure everything out. And on that day, I I realized that I could not. So the hardest part for me was that night not understanding the gravity of it. When all the other guys started showing up, I know you showed up, and then we had a lot of guys from the golf tournament. We were trying to kind of process how many people we were missing because there were certain times – I remember one guy walked up to me and said, hey, man, I heard we are missing 26 people. I was like, what? 26 people? I didn't even realize there was that many people on
0: scene. You told me. I remember – I'll never forget because – you know, I was trying to paint this picture of how big you were earlier for a reason, because one of the most vivid memories I have from that night, other than being inside the building was you were the first person that I encountered. And I remember that white shirt being stretched to the, all threads were stretched off of it. And I remember coming up to you where I can, I mean, I can see you just like I saw you, you know, see you right now. you had that white shirt on with the uniform pants. And I was like, David, what's going on? And you, and you said, you, you told me Lewis was in there, but you thought we had 19 missing at that time. And I remember that, that number when you first told me that.
1: Yeah, it was just crazy because the numbers kept increasing. The first one was Lewis because obviously I did yeah. hear that part of it because I heard the two chiefs asking Captain of 15, Captain Lewis Mulkey. So I, I obviously had an idea that we were missing Captain Lewis. But the other ones, I didn't realize that. And then multiple people started walking up and it went to four and went to six and just kept growing. And that's when I really was in shock because I didn't know what to do to help the situation. I think many of us, we were in the same situation. It wasn't, we weren't bad people. We just didn't understand the complexity or seriousness of something like that. And the message I try to give to people a lot of times is the difference between us and Charleston and a lot of other departments is that we had a bad night. We were unlucky and we got caught. There were so many other departments that were operating that way for a very long time. And the only difference between us and them is one night, one moment in time, we got caught and we were put on a national stage and scrutinized and a lot of other departments, they changed because of the issues that we had on that night. And there's a lot of departments that unfortunately, they may still be operating in a capacity similar to that. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because they don't have the reality of what we have experienced and they don't think it will happen to them. And then unfortunately, it does.
0: Yeah. Sometimes circumstances force you to change. And unfortunately a lot of change doesn't happen without unfortunate events and massive changes took place in our, in our industry because of that event. You know, it's not something we're proud of obviously, but it happened. And, but from that event happening, how, I mean, there's no, that I guarantee you it saved countless lives over the course of the last 14, 15 years, just because of the changes that have been made, because you know, there were other departments, cowboying like we were, but it's like, you say we weren't bad dudes. That's just how we always did it. And we'd never Absolutely. got caught with our, with our pants down. And John McGinnigal, I say this in my book is, uh, you know, captain John McGinnigal was my, was my captain on truck five. And the day he retired, he walked out and he pulled me to the side. And he says, Travis, he said, I want you to be careful. He goes, we're going to lose multiple men because of the way that we fight fire. And I said, man, get out of here. And I didn't think anything of it. And a few months later, Sure enough, we lose multiple companies. I mean, what do you do?
1: Yeah, and it, it's a hard thing to, to even wrap your head around because yeah. for us being younger and not realizing that that could happen for somebody to actually forecast that and see maybe that is an issue. But many of us, you know, didn't think about that. We were just so proud of the way that we operated. Yeah. And the message that I tried to relay over and over again is that we weren't bad people. After the fire, people were treating us like we were bad people. I mean, there were websites started where we were being personally attacked. People were calling our stations, calling. I mean, they were calling us online, calling us murderers by name. They were talking about me and my lack of knowledge, which is a very true statement. And that very much hurt. But I talk about that because it was our own people, our own industry that were saying these things that were so hurtful when we were hurting as it was. And we were still going to work and we were trying to put our best foot forward and we were trying to support Mm -hmm. everyone. And to have the own people in our industry really, really do that it, to this day still bothers me. And that's why when we have a line of duty death, I try to reach out to those departments and talk positively with them because they're human just like us. And if we don't help them get through it, it just makes it worse. Think about how hard that was for us after that.
0: I don't have to. I, I live it every day. I'm every day. I mean, every it day. Just,
1: it, and that part of it was really traumatizing for a lot of us. You know, you had people literally calling you on the phone. And writing uh, magazine articles, saying things about you that were just horrific. And then for you reading that and not having the, the knowledge of maybe the information they're talking about, when they started talking about RIT teams and large diameter hose and these different types of equipment that we did not have, I was blown away because some of that stuff I had never heard
0: of. Well, well, I was going to say that it's not that we didn't even have it. A lot of it, we didn't even, we never even heard of it. It's just not the way our department operated at the time. And it's easy to armchair quarterback. It's easy to say what you would have done. But given the tools that we had, I don't know that anybody would have done things too much differently. See, because I meet guys all the time. They weren't there. They didn't, they're like, oh, you guys fought fire boosters. And they make it sound like it's idiotic. But, dude, and it's not that was the only line in the house. And I try to tell people, I'm like, dude, you don't even know what you're talking about. It'll take you three minutes to get an inch and three-quarter hand line flaked out, brought back up to the door, get it charged in there. I can already be hitting that thing with two one-inch booster lines in there, 60 gallons, which now, you're, what, 120 gallons a minute? You're working on that fire until you can get that engine that three-quarter hand line in there, you know? I mean, so it's...
1: That was just our way of doing it then because that's what we were accustomed to. I think now we've improved so much and learned so much. Our guys, they can stretch that inch and three-quarter that quick and get it in there because now we understand fluid movement. We understand pinch points on hose lines. We right. understand combat hose and, and we didn't know hose maneuverability. That wasn't something you knew. We just picked it up and stretched as hard as we could. And
0: then tight-ass streets in Charleston, you, you go pull a 300-foot lay, you know, I mean, that thing would be kinked for, for miles.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I and remember on special. Cooper
0: Street, we had four, three, four, five houses burning one time. And, dude, they couldn't get – we had so many boosters on it. We, I think we had four boosters off of multiple engines. And they were still out there come with the hand lines because there were cars in the street. The streets were tight back then. Um, and we were flowing, you know, four boosters, we had something going while we were waiting on the hand lines. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, and that was the thing it's, that was just the way that we did it and we were successful, but around that time too, I didn't know that then, but I did after just learning a lot of stuff is that the environment was changing too. So your furniture was changing. Construction was changing. Your curtains were changing. Everything was just so much more flammable. So now where a fire would flash in maybe 15, 20 minutes, you're flashing in three or four. And we're right in the middle of that with, you know, low level booster lines that aren't giving us the water that we needed. So there was a lot of factors that really added into that specific time when things unfolded the way that it did.
0: Let me back up and, and uh, fix what I said a minute ago, about 60 gallon a minute, because somebody's going to try to correct me. I don't, I've been off the job 10 years, 12 years, something. Could have been 40 gallons. gallons a minute. 40? 40. Gallons. 40. Okay. I was 40. sitting here thinking. I was like, wait a minute. I think it was 40.
1: Well, I mean, you got to think too that. You haven't thought about those numbers in a while, but to my recollection, it was twenty-three and forty. Yeah, it's
0: twenty-three the two and 40. numbers
1: that I remember being taught in recruit school and then what we mm-hmm. used on the. Rails. And remember, did they fun. make
0: you? They make you count the teeth and the fog nozzle back then. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember that.
1: Do that. I, I will say that that recruit school, man, I had three good guys that were the ones that were teaching us, and I learned a lot not just about firefighting, but just really about life. Those guys really toughened us up, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'll never forget who they were. I'm not going to mention the names, but they. <laughs> Because I wouldn't want it. that's not fair to them. But I, I I, carry a lot of what they taught me during those two weeks with me to yeah. today, and I'm thankful for that.
0: Yeah, they were good dudes, man. And that, their, whole, their whole business back then was to try to weed you out within a week or two, get rid of you because we didn't need you in Charleston back then. And I'm glad it's not like that anymore um, because it, it did build uh, – I think it put a lot of the right guys in there, but it, it also put a lot of narrow-minded dudes on the job back then too. Like we weren't open to change. We wanted to just be – these alpha males that would go in and breathe all the smoke that was in the fire. You wouldn't even see smoke in the air because it'd be in in a captain's lungs. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the environment that we grew up in. And that's why I talk about after the fire for me, it was very hard to open up about what I was experiencing. And I do that on other episodes. So I'm not here for that. I want to talk about you moving forward now. And after that night, you know, you became an author, you became a speaker, you became a UFC fighter. Uh, you did all of these things, a triathlete, and I remember sitting back, and we lost touch over the years because I was running from my own problems when I was doing comedy, and I got away from the fire department when I left, and I would see you out there still doing great things, and I knew exactly what you were going through, but your story was just a little different than mine. So kind of explain that feeling that you had and why you needed to feel this connection to something and find that, that, that purpose that you were striving to, to achieve.
1: I think the purpose is the biggest part. I was trying to find a purpose with everything that had happened because for for me going through that and watching us lose a lot of good people, think back to how many people were tired for whatever reason, think about how many good people we lost and the institutional knowledge that we lost. And that was starting to really bother me and affect me because I wanted to continue to learn from them. But then that led me down my own road of struggles because I started to read all the reports that came after the fire. And. It's really eye-opening when you read a report and they're talking about you, not by name, but by the engineer of 11, and they say some things about you, you were uneducated, Uh, you were an ignorant backwoods firefighter, and that really hits you, and you look at yourself and ask, was I that? And I realized that, yeah, I was an uneducated firefighter because I didn't reach out to other other avenues of learning my skill set. And that's really where the trauma set in for me, because as I started to learn about pump operations... And I started to re piece that night back together because for four years, I ran from it too, from the end of the event until about, I don't know, 2011, something like that. I I was trying to put it behind me. I was drinking a lot. I was taking prescription drugs. I was trying to mask that. And that was my time during mixed martial arts, which allowed me to distract myself with a sport, which a lot of times in my life, I've done that because it's just something that I need. So it distracted me from what I had to face, but I was I was really struggling with it. It was affecting my family and I decided to do something about it. So I went to a counselor, started talking about it. And obviously, when that occurred, it opened up a lot of bad memories, but also opened up a lot of questions that I I didn't have answers for. And I was becoming really frustrating, really frustrated because I was going to classes at these other conferences because now we had a new fire chief, uh, Chief Tom Carr he actually had chosen a few people by lottery to go to FDIC. And so I remember going to that conference, the first conference I'd ever been to. And I I didn't know anything about a national conference. And I walked in and I mean, there's a hundred thousand firefighters and I'm looking around like, this is crazy. Like this, is there really a world out there like this? So I started going to these classes and I just happened to stop into a class. They're talking about apparatus positioning. And as I go into that class, I sit down and this guy, he, he's talking about his experiences. And then all of a sudden, the picture from the NIOSH report flashes on the PowerPoint. And it's me standing in front of Engine 11 in front of the Sova Superstore. And my heart just sank. And I'm thinking to myself, what is this guy about to say? And then he goes into a lot of different concepts of what we did on the scene. But he was more focused on the apparatus positioning. And if you've seen that picture, you can Google it. It's out there. Terrible positioning on my part. I take accountability for that because I wasn't a student of the game of being a driver. But he went into saying that that apparatus was actually moved throughout that event. And so that really turned me off to what I was listening to because I'm thinking that's me standing there. And I know that engine didn't move for days.
0: I was about to say that they, they did a uh, sorry, man. I'm, they did. did an aerial photograph the following day. And that okay. engine 11 is right where you were that night.
1: Well, it just really hurt me because I was I was very disappointed in that because he didn't get his facts and he didn't do it ill intention. I know he did. He was just trying to make a point. But when you do that, the wrong message is out there. And that's really the point in my life. I said, I have got to do something to get the message out there of what occurred that day. Good, bad or indifferent. And I knew that was going to be difficult because I was going to talk about some things that we did that weren't really where they needed to be. But it wasn't ill-intentioned. It wasn't to call anybody out. I'm calling myself out more than anybody. But I felt liberated when I had that moment in my life. And that's what gave me the purpose to go back to school and really learn about leadership and really about fire science and apparatus positioning. And that really gave me my passion to do that. And so over the next year, that was my goal. I wanted to develop a class. I wanted to learn about what we did more in a timeline. And so I broke out all the videos that I had people had given me and newspaper articles. And I jumped into this and it was just super emotional because I'm reliving it every day. But each day I'm getting a little bit better. I can listen to more radio traffic. I can watch more videos and I'm I'm getting the strength I need. And then finally, I, I put my submission into FDIC, just like everyone else does. And I was lucky and they gave me an opportunity to teach it. And so on April 25th of 2013 which ironically is my anniversary date to when I started in Charleston.
0: Oh wow.
1: Just obviously 8 years before that I did the first class at FDIC and it was I was very nervous. I walked in and of course you can imagine it was standing room only because of the topic not because of me. They wanted to see what this young firefighter had to say and I had a lot of older firefighters in there from across the country but we also had some CFD firefighters in there and I realized that there was a lot of gravity on what was about to take place and that it's very important that the message is presented the right way because I'm not just talking about that event. I'm talking about good people from a good department that I love, that it's why I'm still there today. I have no desire to go to any other department. I've never applied to another department. It just doesn't make any difference to me. Like I love Charleston. That's, that's, more, that's my heart and soul. And so I knew walking out there that day that I had to present it the correct way. And so that added a lot of stress on it because I didn't want to say anything that offended anybody, but I wanted to say stuff that needed to be said in a professional manner so firefighters can learn from what happened that day. And so we made it through the class. And at the end, it was I just broke down in front of everybody. I just couldn't handle it. And I remember one of those older firefighters walking up to me, big burly chest guy with a big mustache. And I remember him walking up to me and he said something along the lines he was proud of me and he gave me a hug. And that that, that meant a lot to me because I was I wanted to do it the right way. And really, that was all I thought it ever would be. I just wanted to teach at FDIC to, to make a wrong or right from that person that had said something that was incorrect. And then I started getting emails and phone calls asking to come teach. And I'm like, I don't even know what to do with all this. And so now I'm trying to figure out how to how to travel, how to rent a car, how to book a flight. I mean, I'm teaching myself all of this stuff. And from that gave me purpose because I realized that all I wanted to do is teach one class. This was not a plan of mine to be doing this in 2022. But I realized that that was now my purpose. And you talk about that a lot with your work. And I essentially believe that's my purpose. I have a different way of presenting things. You're watching me on this video. You can probably look at my mannerisms and realize that I have so much passion and energy that I can't control it sometimes. It's just who I am, and I don't know. There's nothing else for me to do with it unless I channel it into something that's directly related to what we've been through. And that has really been my journey for the last 10 years. It's consumed my life. Um, I'm still on the job, and I'm so blessed to be on the job. You know,
0: know, the universe puts you – I talk about this, how the universe puts you exactly where you need to be at different times, and you just got to learn to roll with it. And because uh, for the longest time, when I was going through a lot of stuff, I found myself fighting the universe. And, and it's I'm not like I, 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 tell, I tell people I'm not spiritual, I'm not religious, but I do realize that you're going to be exactly where put in positions where you need to be in life. And when you say Chief Tom Carr pulled you out of a lottery to send you to that class, had you have not went to that class and saw that firefighter talking about that, you may not be doing what you're doing today, may not be changing all the lives that you've changed for well over a decade now doing what you're doing. Um, and your company name sums you up on a mission. I love it. I mean, because ever since I've known you, dude, you, you've always been on a mission What and whatever mission it is, you, you achieve it. You, you achieve mission accomplishment. That's in the Marine Corps. That's one of our things, mission above everything. And, I, and it's, it's been a wonderful, wonderful thing to watch you turn into, you know, what you have and, and, and see the path that you've taken. and. I do want to talk about some of the, you, you mentioned alcohol and pills and some of the downtimes and how did that affect your relationship with your family? You mentioned that. And I want somebody else to talk about it from their perspective. And when you were getting, you were kicking ass in, in the ring too, but you also, you know, had your face beat up pretty good every once in a while. And, and in a way, did that, I feel like we we're going through a self-destructive phase. Did it make you feel good to get, I know it hurt, but did it give you some sense of, um, I don't really know the word that I'm looking for. When you're getting beat on like that in, in a sick way, it felt good, right?
1: Yeah, it's really hard to explain it. You know, when I started fighting, I really had that, that commitment to see if I could do this sport that I really wanted to do. But there was a background of it that I really wanted to learn, too, as a psychological side of it. But when I started, I wasn't very good at that. I, I was very angry. And if you're an act- if you're a real fighter and you're a real combat Sports enthusiasts, you understand the worst thing you can do is get angry in some kind of combat because you're going to have an adrenaline dump. You can't think rationally. It's just like being a firefighter. So I had to learn very quickly that the slower and the calmer you can make your mind, actually, the quicker you are uh, throwing punches or throwing kicks and and jujitsu and everything like that. But when I got into it, I I learned a lot very, very quickly. But as I started to fight, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. And it's kind of weird. It's one of those things I always told guys that. I could always just take a punch to the face. I don't know why. And I'm not proud of that, but there's many times that in those fights, I, w- I would be in the middle of it and I would literally stand there. Like I'm in a phone booth because I knew that it's probably not going to be me. The, the one that goes down in that manner. Yes. Maybe jujitsu because that wasn't my specialty, but I mean, I stood there with uh, Houston Alexander, like we were in a phone booth and we, and we threw down for three rounds and he had just finished fighting Kimbo slice a couple of months before that. So A lot of the younger guys, if you don't know who Kimbo Slice is, Google him, and then you'll realize the kind of uh, combat sports we we were accomplishing back then. So it was interesting for that. But when I was getting struck that hard, I just, for some reason, I liked it. It just added fuel to my fire just by getting hit and smiling back at my opponent because it would just, I mean, it breaks your soul. When someone hits you as hard as they can in a combat sports environment and you smile back at them, you pretty much broke their will because they've given you everything they have and you (laughs) laughed at them. And so that was something that I just liked to do. And I I know that sounds a little bit crazy, but I think that adds into just my demeanor of competition in life. I always was trying to be in competition with myself. But a lot of that stemmed from when I would have to go to the doctor and get some type of medication because I would have some severe swelling in my face. I had a lot of pain a lot of times. I was getting headaches. My lower back was hurting and stuff like that. So of course the doctor prescribes me prescription drugs and they are very addictive prescription drugs. And it started out very innocently. And then over time it just turned into taking more and then mixing them with alcohol. And it was to the point to where I couldn't really control it for a little while, but I will say that I never missed work. I never called out sick to work. I never went to work under the influence. And so, but I had a way of managing that in my mind. I knew when I could do what I could do, uh, with that, but I knew and I also had to go to work. So I always kept that in check. Thankfully, I never strayed far from, from that end because I didn't want to do anything improper in that situation. But on my off days, it was my off days. And I, I was, I was not doing what I was supposed to be doing. It masked the problem for a little while. And then it just made my relationships horrible. I was very moody. I was upset with my wife. I was yelling at people out in the street on calls. It was just. I, I remember yelling at our deputy chief. We had a new deputy chief from, he was outside of the organization. He was actually trying to do me a solid. I had said something improper to someone because I was so angry. And he tried to come and counsel me one time when I was at a station. It was all good intention. He wasn't going to write me up or anything. He was just really trying to help me. And I remember when he got there, I just totally disrespected him. And uh, since then, obviously, we have talked about that numerous times. We actually laugh about it now. But I think about it, I was just so lost and confused, man. I I didn't know what to do. My only thing to do was to be angry at the world. In reality, I was angry at myself. I was mad at myself and I was taking it out on everyone else. And that's really what counseling let me understand is that you can't do that. You have to get the proper help to reorganize the thoughts in your mind. And that's really where I was able to start to get better and and reframe my thinking from negative to positive.
0: You know, the beautiful thing is we have resources now on this job. I don't care where you are. This, this thing that we go through, this, this uh, trauma exposure, um, the mental wellness aspect of it, there's resources everywhere. There's podcasts, there's books, there's people talking about it. There's supervisors who welcome it. But when we were on the job, there was none of that. And so I'm sitting here listening to you tell my story in a different way. You know, we we had different experiences. I'm using stand-up comedy because it makes me feel on edge. It puts me it gives me a sense of vulnerability. There's a chance I could go up there and suck in front of a bunch of people. It's like going into a ring and getting your face beat in in front of a bunch of people. And I kind of wanted it at times. I was self-destructive. I would put myself in a position to where I wouldn't do well on stage at, 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 times I wanted to do good, but then there was times where I just wanted to feel like I didn't deserve anything, you know? Um,
1: you wanted to feel normal.
0: Yeah. And, 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 the sad part is back then, man, so many, so many people were going through exactly what we were. I mean, we're not going to mention names, but you and I know the guys that wrecked their lives after that event, because they just didn't know how to talk about it, who to talk to, how to even address changes within himself. And I tell people all the time, look, man, you're going to start noticing changes in yourself, but they're going to be small, small, subtle changes. And if you don't recognize that before, you know it, that's just going to become normal behavior over, over the years. And that's what happened to me anyway. And then I was like, well, wow, this is just who I am. Well, it really wasn't. I could still change that.
1: And that's, that's a lot, that's a hard determination to come through or come to Because you're doing things to try to put yourself in that situation because it gives you control. You control whether you're successful or not on stage as a comedian. I controlled whether I was successful or not in that cage. And that gave me a feeling of having my life back because I felt like it was gone because I didn't know how to give direction or or do things I needed to do. And I know for you traveling – in comedy and now traveling for post-traumatic purpose and for me traveling with leadership and that stuff gets lonely too because you're traveling a lot and you're away from your family but the way that we get through it now is on a positive note because we realize that we're trying we're out there we're trying to help people and it's for the right reasons and the messages are, are very important that we continue to relay that stuff.
0: I saw you recently tell me where you were now because I don't remember the city but you made a post, and you were on a mission, you were doing leadership training for a bunch of farmers. Yes, so sir. you do work outside. Yeah. It, you're not, um, you don't work with just emergency services. So now you've, you're outside. Where was that?
1: I want to say that was in Iowa. And I know that sounds bad, but a lot of times I, I just can't remember where I was. So I think it was in Iowa, but sorry, that's my girl Frenchie barking. I think it was in Iowa, but yeah, it's pretty neat. You know, I was talking to a bunch of good people that were farmers that many of them had been volunteers, but to be farmers, they had a whole different perspective, but it was still the same mission that we have as firefighters. They want to be good at farming. They have some safety issues in their profession. And that was pretty cool. I know one time I went and talked to a group of paralegals. You see this guy with a big mustache. who's a firefighter going in to talk to a group of paralegals. So I had to really dial down my message because you know my message, along with yours, it's it's pretty high intensity. I'm saying some pretty hardcore things because I'm trying to wake you up for complacency and stuff like that. And so it's pretty neat trying to adapt those messages because for me, doing that, whether it's paralegals, it could be litigators. I did one for a uh, hospital, insurance companies, because the message is the same. It's complacency. It's about not giving your 100% effort in your chosen profession. And for us, when you don't do that and you have an incident, people die. Yeah. Differences in those professions, it's not that yeah. way.
0: I just remember seeing that picture of you with all those farmers and you go, I don't know the first thing about farming. And you know what I came up with? I knew right then I came up with the title for this uh, for this episode, cultivating leaders. Because you do know about farming. You cultivate leaders, bro. And that's that's what you do. And that's not me blowing smoke. That's me knowing you personally, seeing what you've done with your life and in your profession and seeing just how humble you are and, and, and you make people better around you, man. And they are few and far between, I mean, because you know, the saying I've said it before crabs in a bucket, a lot of places are crabs in a bucket. And if you don't know what that means, that references, when you put crabs in a bucket, when one crab tries to get out, the others reach up with a claw and pull them back down because nobody wants to see anybody get out. And that's not you. Um, if anything, I've witnessed you just building ladders for people to help them climb. And, and, and that's just good on you, bro. And I'm proud to know you. and proud to be your friend.
1: I appreciate that, man. And that's something that's very important to me. We're going uh, through a, a, a little time right now in our organization where we have some young upcoming captains that are, they're going to be our future. And it's really fun being able to invest the time and energy into them and, and mentor them and coach them. I've had so much fun these last probably six months with a few of these guys on our shift. And I want to lift them up. I want those guys to be in those positions one day. I want them to be successful. And a lot of places I go in the leadership area, leaders see themselves in competition with each other. To me, it's the total opposite. I don't see myself in competition with anybody that I work with. I'm in competition with myself to make sure I prepare myself to now grow those leaders that are under me or above me. It's called leading up. To be a good leader, it's you want to help people grow and really develop their knowledge. And that's, that's all I really care about. Like the position doesn't matter to me. Uh, The rank doesn't matter to me. I I genuinely came to a point in my life. I just want to be a a better person and a better leader and really try to, I want to make a difference. I I want people to, to care as much as I know they can. And I just hope it, I hope people, they see the gen, the genuine appearance of that because it's genuine. I I love it. Love well, I can
0: vouch for that for knowing you, man. And it's like, uh, that's what I was hoping we could really talk about today. It's the value of leadership and, you know, because there's people they clock in because they're a leader, they were, they were promoted. In, and I talk about this in my course, where you're promoted into a position that doesn't make you a, a leader. You know, leadership is 24 seven. It never stops. Once, once you achieve that position in a leadership role, you don't get to set that down on the nightstand, you know, it's.
1: And that's so true. And, and, there's one thing I'm learning right now is the five levels of leadership, and it's, it's John Maxwell. And if you know who John Maxwell is, very big into leadership. He's written countless books, and I'm really a student of his work right now. And one thing that I'm reading, it's about the five levels of, of, of really leading from these different levels. And level one is position, and you just talked about that. If you're using your position to be the leader, you're not really a leader. You're, you're just managing people based on your rank, your collar brass, and that is not very effective. You can, you can lead people a little bit, but you're not really going to have the influence over them. And so you move on to permission. So in permission stage, you can lead people that are kind of like-minded. And you're starting to build that level of influence. But what you're trying to do is get through level three, which is production, to where you're making a difference on the operational side, or you're trying to grow the leaders underneath you, and then moves into people development, which is level four. And then level five at the end is the pinnacle, And that's really the highest leadership accomplishment. You're now developing other leaders. You've made it to a point in your career to where the most important thing you can do is to improve the people with you, whether it's on a lateral, underneath you, or above you, because you're trying to grow the system of leadership in that organization or that department. And that's something that's really changed my thought process. I'm more concerned about the guys that are now going to take over our department. I'm not concerned about me. I'm concerned about doing a good job and setting a good example as a leader. And it's genuine. If, if I'm in this position, the rest of my career, because that's where I'm supposed to be great. If there's other opportunities for me, that's great. It's not going to change the love and the passion that I have to try to lead by example and to try to educate and promote these younger captains and firefighters and drivers who, who are our future in Charleston. And I, as I travel, I see that that's not happening in some departments. The quick fix is to look outside and maybe find someone who can do a certain job. But I want to influence our people to, to learn and, and to become better educated and do different things. And it's just very important to mentor and coach our firefighters that way.
0: I love it, man. And you know who who, the, who one of the biggest threat to leadership training is about to be? Who's that? President Zelensky from Ukraine. You see all the. Have you I seen the memes too much of it? Oh, because he's—I <laughs> see all these memes about just just leadership. Because I don't get political at all or on anything. Because one, I'm right. too dumb. But I just—I enjoy seeing him because he's out there supposedly on the front lines. I don't know if it's photo ops with his with his army or whatnot. But he says I'm not I'm not fleeing and seeking uh, asylum anywhere. I'm gonna stay here with, with my people. And wow. he's he's wearing a uniform with a chest plate and walking oh, around yeah. in a helmet. Yeah, he's wow. So Powerful, I was like, man, man, he's gonna come over here and teach some leadership classes. <laughs> you know before we get out of here, man, I want to, I want to talk about, um, I got a couple notes I was making, um, about perspective perspective for me and how you, how you choose to view your current situation or your future or your past. I mean, it can be whatever you want it to be and it can be as beautiful or as, or as horrible as you want to make it. And it's just how you choose to see things. Uh, I talk about, um, the Stony Avenue fire in one of my classes that I teach, and if you remember correctly, we were on that scene together. I was on the ladder company, and we went in to grab this guy, and he died. And we were doing a, a mutual aid call with another department who was trying to pretty much Denver drill this big, heavy-set man out of a, a bathroom window, and he died, and, and they, they just couldn't get him out. And you were, if I'm not mistaken, you were on the ladder outside when they got that guy out of the window, right?
1: I think I was on the ground. Okay. Because we had to lift him because well, you. were the, hands
0: on either way, right outside, right?
1: Yeah, because me okay. and you had we had gone in and went through some rafters, and then we came to a determination. I think you were in the bathroom, and then I went outside to the window, and we were trying to lift him out of the window. But it was an elevated window; it wasn't like right on the floor. Yeah. So. Around.
0: This is what I'm getting at is, I went in with uh, another member of my crew, and what happened was that that other department was actually in the bathroom hands-on and they slammed the door in our face. They go, he's ours. We got him. And we could have gotten the guy out of the, the house. Literally we were 15 feet away from the front door. We could have scooped him up and been gone. And what I chose to see, and this was because I was going through everything that I was going through at the time. I was, I was real deep into alcohol during this time. I hated everybody around me. I was mad. I, all, I always saw red. I saw what I wanted to see. And this is what I'm getting at. The guy ended up dying for years. And I don't know if you remember the phone call I called you one day and I asked you about this call and I asked you, I was like, Dave, do you think we could have saved that guy if they would have just handed him off? And you, you told me, no oh, man, he was dead before, before they were even trying to lift him up. He was already dead. And I didn't know that. So I chose to be mad at that department, those firefighters for t- pretty much killing the guy. And it's, it's perspective. You see what you want to see. I didn't ask the questions. I just I wanted to be mad. I wanted to see that. Can you talk about perspective?
1: Yeah, my and that that's a good event to use. I had a different perspective of just seeing his face and knowing that the soot around his nose and his mouth, and you could just tell that poor guy had been in there for quite some time and he had breathing a lot of smoke. But that didn't stop us from trying to get him out of there. We still tried to get him out of there and we got him out of there eventually. But he just didn't survive. But my perspective of that was to try to stay as positive as I could because I knew that we we physically did everything possible to get him out there as quick as we could. And, it, and he was a big guy. He was probably mm-hmm. six, three, six, four, several I mean, hundred. A bigger, yeah, yeah. He, he was, a, he was a big fella. big uh... But that bothered me after, after the event for quite some time because I thought, could we have done more? And then I just came to the determination that we did everything that we could have done. And that allowed me to continue to change my perspective in my career. Cause shortly after that, well, i it's probably maybe a year or so after that. I remember we were driving to an event and we turned the corner and there's fire blown out of every window, two story, big residential structure. And there's reports of someone in there, but there's no way that person was surviving. And We had to make a hard decision not to go in that building. And It was the right call and ended up finding someone in that building. And- Is that the girl? No, that was a different event. Yeah, okay. those guys actually went in there and tried to search for. And they yeah, I know. Water.
0: I don't say names, but uh, one guy got burned up pretty badly. Pulled that girl out of that that fire. I remember that one? So yeah,
1: that, that was yeah. a rough one. But on this one, um, we we had to make the determination not to go in there because of the amount of fire and in relation to getting a water supply. And it, it was just the right call. And there was a lot of discussion after that event about was it right or was it wrong? But I always go back to this: we made a decision that we had to be able to live with. And those are tough calls to make, but that's, you have to be educated to make those decisions, but also be educated to have a proper perspective of making that decision. And that's super important because you have a split second to make life-saving decisions. But if your perspective is not in reality, you may make a decision that is not going to be risk versus reward based. It could be based on something else. It could be based on your ego, or it could be based on not what you're seeing, what you think you're seeing. And so I've allowed that perspective to change my thought process to two two words I say to any event I go to. For what? It's what I say. For what? We arrive on scene to a high rise and there's fire blowing out of every window. I'm asking myself, for what are we sending resources where? What are they doing? And what's our chances of making proper rescues and extinguishing the fire quickly? That allows me to get perspective on what I'm seeing. And so I, I use that on everything, whether it's active shooter it's an auto entrapment. At the end of the day, we want our people to go home and to be safe. And that's the vow that we've taken, the oath that we've taken, especially now being in a leadership position and an incident commander. A lot of times that's, I take that serious and it may not, some, some individuals on a scene may not agree with that, but at the end of the day, as the leader and the incident commander, you have to make that decision. I would rather someone be mad at me because I kept them from doing something that could get them hurt or lose their life, but at least they're alive to be mad at me. So maybe eventually we could talk through it. And that's important to me.
0: Well, that brings this discussion literally full circle because when we came up, it wasn't like that. We didn't sit outside and I don't, I don't ever knock anybody from our department. I'm, I'm actually proud to, to have been a Charleston fireman and I'm proud to have done it the way we did, because that's just the way we always did it. Like we talked about earlier in here you can always, there's always room for improvement, but we just didn't train with, I mean, we, we were we were very tunnel vision based back in the day. We saw it. We just went after it. Like I was sitting here when you were like describing that house with all the fire blowing out of every hole. I was sitting here. I was said, like, I know that was after 2007 because before then we would have been in there no matter how much fire was coming out. We didn't have perspective back then. And all we knew was cowboy, pull some hoses and get in there. We don't care. And now think about that chain of events, what the Sofa Superstore has allowed. It has allowed you, it has allowed leadership from across the country to have perspective so we don't make the same mistakes and we don't, you know, lose guys in the, in the line of duty.
1: For sure, and that's, that's part of being a student. I call it a student of the game. That's what my coach used to tell me as a baseball player. Be a student of the game. Be a student of this profession. Read NIOSH reports. Read NIST studies. Listen to Mayday traffic. Listen to those pieces so when you get to a scene – you don't normalize deviant behavior. And basically the phrase is the normalization of deviance. We had behavior that allowed us to be very successful because we were good at it. But then one day we weren't successful and we realized that there, there probably was a better way of doing it. And again, I go back to, we weren't bad people. It's what we knew and we were always good at it and we were successful. But then the day you're not successful, you have to ask those hard questions and it's, and it's a hard reality. And, but it really did change our perspective on a national level. And that's why a lot of things were done differently on, on the emergency services scene today because of what occurred in Charleston and really a lot of other places that have gone through these similar events.
0: Yeah, I'm trying. And that's what I try to do when I talk about post-traumatic purpose with the mental health uh, aspect of things, not so much. I do. I talk about leadership. I don't, I don't really go too in depth with it, but my main focus is wellness and it's, I'm able to look at my life in perspective and I'm able to step outside of myself and see what I went through, why I went through it. I, I became a student of myself. Like you say, a student of the game. I was my own game. When I sat down to write, create your own light, that book, I didn't write it to sell it. I wanted, because like I discussed earlier, we didn't have resources. I wanted to learn about myself. So I sat down and I wrote this book and I was like, all right, no lies, just write, write everything, you know, about the trauma you experienced, not all of it, but some of it. And I said, and through that process, I was able to watch myself go from this fun, energetic, outgoing guy into this dark hole that I lived in for the longest times, man. And now I use that. I use that perspective to get out there and teach about it. So,
1: And and that's your therapy too. Mm -hmm. I always go back to, I want to read stuff from people that have been through it. I want to read the book by Marcus Utrell. I want to hear about the guy that lived it because he knows if you don't write it, who's going to write it? There's no other Travis house. That's they right. don't have your perspective. And so I try to tell people when you've gone through something traumatic, you have a couple of choices. You can teach people like there's a lot of help or a lot of good you can do. If you are brave enough to go out there, it could just be a conversation at your church. It could be a conversation at dinner, but when you open yourself up to that vulnerability and open yourself up to thinking about things in a different perspective, it helps people right off the bat because we're all imperfect people in an imperfect world trying to figure out how we march on with all these things that happened to us. In the last two years has been a lot of trauma in people's lives.
0: That's right. You um, you know, we're talking about writing books and everything. I want to mention your books real fast. You have you have four books, right? I do, yes, sir. Four. You have nine yes. missions for personal growth. Right? Yes, sir. That's action. You have a study of change following tragedy, and that that book was written in honor of Charleston Nine. Yes, sir. You have from PTSD to PT, PTG, which is post traumatic growth. Yes. And you have tattoos and trauma. Do you have a favorite that you sat down and wrote?
1: I think the most fun to write was tattoos and trauma because I connected with so many people on a level of traumatic experiences and how they remember that with ink on their skin. It was really eye opening. And really how that started. I had a guy send me an email and he pretty much told me in not so nice terms that there's no correlation between between tattoos and trauma. And so it was kind of interesting to me because I knew there was thousands of years of research on that. And so I sent him some links and I said, I'm gonna write a book on this because I'm really uh, intrigued by it. I think my favorite one um, actually is my wife's book. She wrote a, a small book about her perspective and what she was experiencing as we were going through this together. And I know your spouse can attest to this too, because she's been with you through all of these uh, challenges as well. And I think that was the most, that's my favorite one out of anything I've ever read, because it put it into perspective that we have to realize that we're traumatized, but when we don't get the proper help, we're traumatizing everyone that we love, our spouse, our kids, our friends, and our family. And that's when it turns very selfish, because we're not thinking about how we're making our loved ones feel. They're there for us, and we're turning against them.
0: Yeah. A hundred percent, man. I just had a uh, Jen samples on a couple episodes ago and she talked about it from a spouse's perspective. You know, her husband, unfortunately took his own life. He was a captain with Cleveland F- uh, fire department, in Tennessee. She's a police officer and she got on here and she talked about it. And it was, I mean, I wanted people to understand from that spouse's point of view, um, that perspective of what it's like sitting on the other side. I mean, cause we, we get front row seats to it, but we only see it through our eyes, you know, uh, that's we,
1: all we know. That's our perspective. That's the it. important thing is getting that other perspective of the people that love you. Cause you know, that in our profession, trauma is high, but the divorce rate is also high. So now add divorce into traumatic experience. And now it's a very, very tough time in someone's life.
0: It is. And you know, you and I have been talking about some, some future plans for something that I won't, I won't divulge on here, but I'm excited about that to see kind of where, where that road leads. Um, but I will, I will admit, man, I didn't, I wasn't aware of your, from PTSD to PTG book. Do you remember that conversation we had?
1: We talked about it. It was awesome.
0: I was pissed <laughs> at you because I was actually doing some research. Cause I go, man, I got the perfect name for my book from post-traumatic purpose, to post-traumatic growth or uh, post-traumatic stress to post-traumatic growth. And I Googled it and your name came out and I go of all people, I was like, David Griffin, are you serious? And so I called you and I was like, is this, you serious about this? You're like, yeah, why? (laughs) So so I had to rename my book, but that's, that's what I love about the universe, man. It puts you where you need to be. That wasn't for me. That was for you, you know, and I got to rename mine something else. So,
1: and I thought that was cool too, because I post-traumatic purpose is important because essentially that's how you get to post-traumatic growth. You gotta, you have to find a purpose, which allows you to grow to where you are in your current life with a that's different right. perspective. And that's important for everybody.
0: Well, man, I just hope we can all continue to grow. And I, I appreciate you coming on spending a little bit of your time on here. And I want to encourage people. Um, you you got to check out Dr. David Griffin's stuff. If you, if you, I know y'all know who he is because everybody always asks me, but if you haven't checked his stuff out, check him out. And where can they find you, Dave?
1: My website is drdavidgriffin.com and has all the information about our classes and our reading materials and uh, email is on that website as well. So if you're interested in any kind of leadership, I'm not here to sell you anything. Uh, you know, I answer emails and all of that stuff. So it takes me a few days to get to everything, but please, if you have any questions about leadership, trust the nine post-traumatic stress, I'm always accessible and uh, hope to hear from you guys.
0: Good deal, man. Appreciate your time coming on today, brother. Be safe out there and stay on. Cause I'm gonna. once I uh, turn this off, we'll talk a little bit.
1: All right. Tea house. Thank you, buddy. All right,
0: brother.